Welcome to the Liberty Baptist Sermon Archives. The message you're about to hear was preached at Liberty Baptist Church in Easton, Massachusetts. You can find out more about us or contact us at mylibertybaptist.org or just look us up on Facebook. And now we hope that this message from God's Word will be a blessing to you. Luke chapter number 15 this morning, and I'll tell you, our revival meeting this last week was such a blessing. Brother Frank Wood is such a blessing, and his wife Wanda as well, just preaching the Word of God every single night, getting right to the heart of the needs that we have as people. But we are still moving forward. Every month we're moving forward in a different category, and this month we are still moving forward in revival. And I want to speak this morning about an issue that I believe will keep us from revival uh, as much as anything. Oh, we have another visitor as well this morning. All right, yeah, Casey. Casey. Yeah, so Casey, I could see he was craving the attention. Casey, I'm so sorry uh, from uh, Kaylee's Homeschool Co-op. And so we're glad Casey is here this morning as well. Sorry about that. All right, sorry. So uh, when you look at revival, there is one thing that can get in the way of true revival. And I'm sure we could name several things this morning, but there's one thing that really uh, spoke to me just this last week as I was listening to the preaching and uh, several different things. And so I want to bring that forward to you this morning. But before I do that, I want to talk about how difficult it is to teach a teenager how to drive. I want to talk about, and I'm glad that I can do this with Bethany uh, now home as well, so I can now uh, insult both Bethany and Kaylee. Uh, But there is nothing in the parenting experience, and I expect to get some amens here this morning. There's nothing in the parenting experience quite to prepare you for teaching a teenager how to drive. There really isn't. I mean, uh, I drive. I mean, we drove all over the country on deputation. Uh, My wife is a good driver. In many ways, she's a better driver than I am. I like to drive, though. I like being behind the wheel. But nothing prepared me for the first time I took Bethany out to drive. And listen, this is no insult to Bethany nor to Kaylee, who both, I believe, are pretty good drivers. Um, (laughs) Uh, they No, they are. They're very good drivers. Uh, but nothing prepares you to let a teenager whose only experience with driving is go-karts and video games <laughs> to get behind the wheel of a two-ton machine and go down the streets that you have been driving down so often that you can almost zone out. But to them, uh, it's like virtual reality, except it's reality reality. And if you hit someone in reality, reality, the consequences are dire. And so uh, there was nothing that prepared me for the first time I took Bethany out. And again, she did wonderful under the circumstances of never having driven before. But I clenched my body so tightly that by the time I got out of the car 30 minutes later, I didn't think that I could unclench myself because I was so tight from being her being behind the wheel. Kaylee uh, has done a wonderful job in, in many ways, but yet still uh, had a, an idea of trying to uh, clip a telephone pole uh, a little while ago. I mean, who needs these telephone poles anymore anyway, you know? And so uh, we all use cell phones, and that's just... And I, I, I braced my body for impact, and it was only the Lord that somehow got us out of that situation. And I say that with no irony whatsoever, because I'm still not sure how we didn't hit that pole. Uh, but listen, that's part of driving, isn't it? All of us, the first time I drove, my dad says, all right, go around this curb. And I didn't know you're supposed to hit the, the brake as you went around the curve. And so I went into the curve at 40 miles an hour. I was in the curve at 40 miles an hour. I came out of the curve at 40 miles an hour. And my dad was screaming at me at 40 miles an hour uh, by the time we got through. It's part of the process, isn't it? And we don't like giving up control. That's really what a lot of it is, isn't it? Because you're giving up control really to someone who is inexperienced. 
and doing so can cause a lot of nerves to take place when it comes to teaching someone, anyone, how to drive. Here's what I want to get across to us today. There's a couple, there's a couple reasons I don't like giving up control and teaching how to drive. One, because I like being in control. But two, I'm giving up control to someone who really doesn't know how to take control yet. So, so these are the problems. One, as I'm teaching someone to drive, I, I don't want to give up control, but I'm giving that control to someone who at this point really doesn't deserve it, but yet they have to go through that process to learn how to be able to. That's all great for teaching someone how to drive. But you know, I feel like a lot of times that's how we treat God when it comes to control. We like being in control of our own lives. We don't like giving God control of our lives. And sometimes we treat God as if he is the teenager who doesn't know how to drive. And if we were to give him control, we know things would get out of control fast. But yet, do you realize that if we were to allow God to truly control our lives, that we would truly be able to be in a place where God can use us, where God can bless us, and God can do with us far greater than we can do with ourselves. And so I believe that when it comes to this issue of moving forward in revival, this morning is my desire to show you that a refusal to give God full control of your life could be the single most devastating decision you'll ever make in your spiritual life. I'm going to say that again. The refusal to give God full control of your life could be the single most devastating decision you'll ever make in your spiritual life. And there's two reasons for that. By the time you leave this morning, I want you to understand this. One, God must be in control of your life. But two, God is worthy Amen. of putting your trust in. Would you stand please for the reading of God's word? Luke chapter number 15. This is one of those passages where very likely if you've been in church for any length of time, you're familiar with the parable of the prodigal son. And so I'm just going to encourage you as we read it, don't allow the years of familiarity to cause you to miss what God may have for us here in this text this morning. So Luke chapter number 15, beginning verse number 11. And he, this being Jesus, said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in that land, and he began to be in want. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. And when he came unto himself, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him, had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But the father said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe, and put it on him, and 
Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to be merry. May God bless the reading of his word and I'll ask you to be seated this morning as we get into our message. The text that we just read is called by some the parable of the prodigal son while others would call it the parable of the lost son dealing with the other two issues of things being lost earlier in the chapter. Well, some would call it the parable of the two brothers because while there is a prodigal son here at the beginning of the chapter, we'll find that at the end of the story where we didn't read that there was another brother as well who had some issues of bitterness with his brother who came back into the fold. But if I was to call this a title this morning, and none of those titles are actually found in scripture, but if I was to give a title to this parable this morning, maybe it would be this, the parable of the passenger the parable of the passenger. And the reason why is to relate what I was just telling you a few minutes ago about driving, something that we can understand with the issue of what this young man did here in this text. The prodigal desired to sit in the driver's seat of his life and in the driver's seat of his destiny instead of being the passenger and allowing his father to be the one who was to care for him in a way that only his father could care for him. So as we look at this thought today, really... The first two verses give us an abundance of things to concentrate on when it comes to this issue of this young man and wanting to be in control. Look again at where it says at verse number 12. It says, And the younger of them, uh, the two sons, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. This young man, whether motivated by greed or lust or a sense of entitlement, or something else altogether, asked his father to give him his inheritance. Now, if that sounds odd to you, because you would say maybe very naturally, well, pastor, isn't something inheritance, is that something that people get after someone passes away? The answer would be, well, yes, that's exactly what inheritance is. And if you were to go into antiquity, that really would be the way it has always been, that you don't give inheritance until someone passes away, and then their goods are broken down and passed down to the children. But there was in the laws of the time here, and the Jews would have understood this, that there would be a possibility that an estate could be liquidated and could be dispersed if one of the children requested it before the death of the father. This is something that could happen. And in this case, he requested that, and the estate would need to be divided into thirds. The reason why is the elder would receive the double portion, two-thirds, while the younger son would receive one-third of this estate. But there was a catch to all of this. There, it wasn't just as simple as, well, I can request the inheritance early. No, even just making the request before the father passed away was a sign that the son had no faith or confidence or love or care or concern for the father. Because wouldn't it be natural to want the father to retain his own goods, to be able to keep his own wealth, to grow his own wealth on behalf of the brothers so that when he passes, they could give a proper inheritance. But no, this young man said this, for whatever reason, we don't know. Jesus doesn't tell us in this parable, but we do know from what happens afterwards, the fact that he went 
and wasted his substance on riotous living, it tells us this fact, that he did not have a good intent in his heart. One commentator said this, to my knowledge, in all of Middle Eastern literature, aside from this parable, from ancient times to the present, there is no case of any son, older or younger, asking for his inheritance from a father who is still in good health. To request it prematurely was tantamount to expressing a wish that the father would die. Could we maybe put it in the way we would say it today? It was as if the son was saying to his dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead. It's a pretty serious thing, isn't it? As cold and as heartless as this is, I really want to examine this this morning because what this comes down to was an issue of control. The father had control over the inheritance. The father had control over the goods. The father had control to a certain extent over the sons. But what did the son say? I don't want the father's control anymore. In essence, he was saying this, you've been holding me back and I can do it better. This is what he's saying just by requesting uh, th this very abnormal request to receive his inheritance early on in his life. He was discontent with the life he was living. He was very likely discontent with the restrictions that were placed on him, that he felt like they were unfair because we see later on the actions that he partook in in that far country were not the actions he partook in in his father's house. His father had some rules. His father had some standards. His father said there's some things that you should do and there's some things that you shouldn't do. And he said that not just because he was a mean, grumpy, angry old man, but because he knew he wanted his sons to grow up in a way that was good and right and that would be protected. But, but just this very request, just the fact that he says, I want my inheritance and I want it now, this is what he's saying, I want control of my life. I don't want the father to have control anymore. I want my money and I want it now. Father, I don't want you to be in control anymore. And we look at the prodigal and we say, how foolish are you? You have a father who loves you. You have a father who's provided for you. In fact, anything you have, prodigal, you only have because of benevolence and the care and the work of the father. Why would you be so foolish to make a request? Why would you think so negatively about your father? But yet, there are those of us here this morning that if we're not careful, allow those thoughts to creep into our own life about our Heavenly Father. He's so restrictive. Well, I can't do whatever I want. Oh, I know what He's called me to do, but I'd rather do something else. Oh, sure, I know what His Word says, but this is the way I want to live my life. And what we end up doing is we end up trying to take control for ourselves. And may I remind you that when we take control away from God and we put ourselves in the driver's seat of our own life, it never ends well. It didn't end well for the prodigal. Now, thank the Lord for a restoration. But we know that the far country experience wasn't a good one for him. But I also realize this, that he came to his senses in the pig pen, which, by the way, you realize how humiliating it would have been for a Jew to feed swine, something that was unclean for them. And here's this guy. 
He's in the pig pen after he wastes all of his father's money. He, he wastes his living with harlots. This is what his older brother uh, would have said later on in verse number 30. He, he wastes his life in a way that, that it's just almost unfathomable to us. In fact, that word prodigal, it's not really found here in our text, but the word prodigal, sometimes we think it just means wanderer. But prodigal literally means spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wastefully extravagant. The prodigal is not, well, it just meant he wandered. No, no, he was a waster. He took the great gifts that his father had given them, and in his own control, in his own bank account, he ended up frivolously and wantonly wasting them all. But he's in the pig pen, and he looks at the pigs that are unclean, and he sees the slop that they're eating, and he says this, they eat better than I do. They have more care than I do. What happened? he had finally come to grips with the fact that when he was in control instead of the Father, his life was a mess. You know what I fear? That there are many who know Jesus Christ as their Savior, maybe even here this morning, and I don't know your eternal state. Uh, that's between you and the Father. But I do know this, that there are many who claim to know Jesus Christ, but that don't want him to have full control. That there's, They just want this balance. Well, I, I want God to control my eternity, and I would like God to control maybe some big things in my life that I know that I can't handle, but I don't want God to have full control of my life because after all, I mean, I'm a human being and I have thoughts and I have desires and I have wishes. Why? I mean, can't I have a little bit of control? And the answer is sure, if you want to make things a mess. You can have all the control you want. We're, we're free beings with a free will allowed to make those decisions. But if you make that decision for yourself that you will be in control, we find over and over in Scripture, not just the prodigal, but in many other places, that when we try to take control from the Father, we end up getting ourselves into big trouble real quick. So I said there's two things I want us to examine this morning, and the first is this. We need to remind ourselves that God must be in control of our lives. God must be in control of our lives. There's an old saying that says this, let go and let God. You know, I think there's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? It's maybe oft repeated and trite in some ways, but it's true. Just let go and let God. Now, I'll say this. When we say that God must be in control of our lives, I'm not talking about acting in a way that's frenzied or uncontrollable. Uh, no, no, you realize that 1 Corinthians 14, 40 tells us that our God is a God of decency and order. And so I'm not saying that, you know, we're to act in an uncontrollable way or to just get up on the, the, the chairs and shout and scream and things like that. I mean, that, that's not what I'm talking about today. There's some religious experiences, quote unquote, where maybe that's what that would mean. But I'm not talking about that at all when we talk about letting God be in control. What I mean is this, we're talking about yielding ourselves to God allowing the God of decency and order to rule our lives, yielding ourselves to him. Talking about driving, uh, they had to learn very quickly, and Kaylee and I just talked about this a few weeks ago, about what the yield sign means. And uh, it seems like there's a lot of people in Massachusetts that don't know what the yield sign means. Do many, the yield sign means this. If I see someone coming and I see the yield sign, it's a reminder to go faster. And that's not what yield means. It means to allow those who are coming to go through, and if someone has to stop, it's me. And you know, when it comes to my relationship with God, if God's going one way and I'm going to another, guess who has to yield? It's me. 
it's never to the point, well, God, this is what I want to do. I'd like you to yield. I'd like you to stop. I mean, I'd like you to, to, to stop the present course on which you're going because I have plans and I have things that I want to do and I have my own opinions about the Word of God of what I think it should be or what I wish it would be. No, God, you have to yield. No, no. We have to understand that if we want true revival in our lives, we better yield ourselves completely and totally and fully to God to yield ourselves willing sacrifices to Him. Luke 9, 23 and 24 says this, And he said to them all, this is Jesus, If any man will come to me and let him, uh, let's try it again. <laughs> okay. Um, and he said to them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. By the way, daily. Daily. Some of us are good at it one day a week daily and follow me for whosoever will save his life shall lose it but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake the same shall save it what about jeremiah 29 11? for i know the thoughts that i think toward you saith the lord thoughts of peace and not of evil and to give you an expected end you yield yourself to him he will bring those good things to your life now they may not always seem good at the moment but they will always bring out the peaceable fruit of righteousness, the Word of God tells us. I have a quote here from Martin Luther, which I struggled with all week because I'm a recovering Lutheran as it is, but this was too good to not say it. Martin Luther said this, I have held many things in my hands, and I have lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. I like that. I've held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess possess. You see, God uses people who allow him full control. Over and over, we see it in the Bible, Abraham surrendered his will to God, and he would go wherever God told him to go. Hebrews 11:8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out not knowing whither he went. I believe from day to day, Abraham didn't know necessarily where he was to go other than, well, God, where do you want me to go today? And you'd say, that's crazy, but that's how we're supposed to live our lives. Oftentimes we get ourselves into trouble and difficult situations and we say something like this, well, we just had to take it day by day. And that's a proper sentiment, but that's not the sentiment just for times of difficulty. It's the sentiment for every day. I don't know who, uh, who, what's going to happen tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. And so Abraham surrendered. And God led him. Gideon surrendered to God uh, when he didn't know how he could beat the Midianites. And God says, you have 32,000 and you want to face the Midianites? That's too many. Let's whittle it down to 300. And when Mid uh, Gideon totally surrendered himself to God, what happened? Well, the Midianites couldn't stand before his 300 because God was in control. What about Elisha? Elisha had his own plans. He was going to uh, be in his family's farming industry. Uh, he was out there plowing with many oxen, which would have been a sign of some manner of wealth. And Elijah comes behind him and just places his mantle on top of him and keeps walking and just walks away. Could you imagine just being out there in the field? First of all, I can't imagine being out in the field because I don't know anything about farming. But imagine being out in the John Deere and somebody throws a, a, a jacket on you and just walks away. And that's what happens. And, and he says, what is this? And Elisha, Elijah says to Elisha, you're going to be the prophet that is to follow. And Elijah didn't argue. Elijah, or Elisha didn't argue and he didn't fight. What he did was he took those farm implements. He slaughtered the animals, had a big old barbecue, 
And the next day he went with Elijah. Why? What was he saying? I fully surrender to what God has for me. The disciples surrendered when Christ called them, telling them that they would become fishers of men. Uh, Paul surrendered on the Damascus Road. Uh, and we think somehow that the best course for our lives is after we're to be born again, then wrestle full control back from God once we're saved. That's foolish. There's no reason for that. In fact, it's quite opposite. See, God's not looking for type A personalities. I believe he's looking for type Y personalities, which is the Y being yield. He's looking for type Y personalities, people who are willing to yield. Too many people are simply just asking God, why? Why? Not type Y as in I need to yield to him. It's just, well, God, why? Why? You know, AJ has this, this, uh, this wonderful knack. It's in my notes. AJ has uh, this wonderful knack. No, I'm not just pulling sermon illustrations for my children as they whisper them in the crowd. Uh, it's in my notes. AJ has this really cute and infuriating quality that when we ask him, like just a couple days ago, AJ, hey, buddy, I need you to, uh, to do the dishes. He goes, but why? And the way he says it is so cute, and it's so disobedient. But yeah, it's so cute at the same time, and you just want to smile. Like, oh, I know, buddy, you're still going to have to do the dishes. But why? You know, and I wonder sometimes when we do that to God, but, but, but why? But why? Do you realize the gap of understanding between us and God? There is no even estimating it. It's infinite. And we're to look at God and say, but Why? And I'm reminded that, that we're allowed to ask God why, and I've said this here before, and it doesn't necessarily inherently have to be sinful, but when you ask God why, you must remind yourself, you must be content receiving the same answer that Jesus received when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer he got was this. Silence. Wouldn't we just be much better to just yield? God being in full control J. Vernon McGee said this, let me remind you that this is God's universe. He is doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe to rule. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe to rule. But, but speaking of why, we ask ourselves this, knowing that God must be in full control of our lives, we ask ourselves this, why should we yield our control to him? And number two, and I mentioned this at the beginning of the message, is this, God is worthy of putting your trust in. God is worthy of putting your trust in. By the way, that's true for every single person when it comes to salvation. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, if, if you have never asked him to forgive you of your sins because you are a sinner, it's not because it's just you, it's because it's the human condition. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If you've never asked God to forgive you of your sins and to have a home in heaven, what the Bible calls being born again, that's something you need to do today because any of these other things are peripheral. Uh, the main issue for you today, if you don't know if you're going to die, whether you go to heaven or to hell, what you need to do first before anything is to give your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ and salvation. But if he's worthy for us to trust him with a salvation we can't see, then he is more than worthy to trust him with a life that's here in front of us, many of the things of which we can see. He is worthy of putting our trust in. Well, how great is our Father? How worthy is He? Well, we could see the Father right here in, in our text, and we could understand. When His Son came up to Him and made this indecent request, He was patient despite His Son's disrespect. What did He do? 
he divided the living, even though my understanding legally at that time was he didn't have to, but he still followed the request of his son. But yet, despite his son's disrespect, his love never diminished for his son. Do you know how we know that? Because we see that it says in verse number uh, uh, 20, and he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. He was waiting for his son and ran to him while he was a great way off. And you know what's amazing? I, and this is another, just another reason why he's so trustworthy of putting our, uh, worthy of putting our trust in. That little speech that the prodigal said in the pig pen, look at verse number 18. I will arise and go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Now I have to wonder if he just in his mind just had that on repeat. Because when he gets to his father, it's word for word. He says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. But if you notice, it doesn't say that his father interrupts him, but he does. Because after he says, I'm no more worthy to be called thy son, he says, bring forth the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. What did he interrupt him before he said next? He said, make me one as thy hired servants. What did the father do? He says, I'm not going to make you a slave. He says, no, I'm not going to take you back. I'm not going to take you back any different way than you were before. I'm going to bring you back in full restoration. You have always been my son. You will still be my son. Uh, you will not be of a lesser stature or lesser state. Uh, because, listen, how could we not trust a father like this that would love us to such an extent that even when we wander, even when we make a mockery of him, even after we get saved, that we go back to him uh, in repentance as this man did, as this young man did, and the father says, no, 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 you're, you're trying to, to debase yourself to try to uh, make yourself be brought up again, or maybe even in his mind he would say, I'm really not worthy uh, to be a son anymore. He says, no, 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 you're still going to be the son. That's a beautiful thing. That's an amazing thought. So here's my challenge to you this morning. Find someone better than this father and put your trust in them. The answer is you can't. It's not your close acquaintance. It's not even your spouse. It's not the godliest person you may know. And here's the thing, it's certainly not yourself. There's only one that's worthy of that trust that'll never let you down. And it's the Father. He is worthy. But yet Matthew 10, 38 says this, And he that taketh not his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. So the worth issue comes down to who? Not to him, but to us. But yet despite the fact that we don't take up our cross, despite the fact that we don't, we want to take control, he still loves us still cares for us. And when we stray, he longs for us to come back in repentance. But do you notice that he didn't drag his son out of the pig pen? Would that have done any good? His son had to come to that decision on his own. And as soon as his son came to that decision, the father was ready in forgiveness. It's a powerful thought. I drove Uber for about two and a half years, not long after we started here. 
and this is when Uber was still a fairly new thing, and I'm thankful my mom was no longer alive to know that I drove Uber because she would have been so scared every day, and Miss Priscilla made up for that, thankfully. Uh, she always checked on me, which I was, I was very thankful for, how sweet she is about that. But uh, people say, what, what, was the worst, what was the worst drive you ever had? And I drove everywhere. I drove into New Hampshire. I drove someone to Hartford, Connecticut once. I mean, I drove all over the place, down into Rhode Island. The worst trip I ever had was three blocks from here, probably, at Doyle's. And it was after a Sunday night service. And I uh, was just, after Sunday night, we had still lived up the road from here. And I said, you know what, I'll just turn it on, the Uber on for a few minutes and see if I get a ride and someone comes from Doyle's. It was misting, a little bit of rain, kind of like it was at the end of the rain last night where it's kind of humid. And, and so th this uh, man gets into the car and uh, he had uh, enjoyed Doyle's quite a bit from the, the seeming of it and needed a ride home. And so I was glad to be able to provide that instead of him being on the road. And so uh, we're driving just around the corner from here. I could probably take you to the spot and you would know exactly where it is. And uh, my, my window was starting to fog up because of the rain and because of uh, the, the, uh, the temperature and all this and the humidity. And uh, I was trying to get my bearings and try to fix everything and also trying to get where he was going home as well. And this, this man in the passenger seat says, oh, here, I'll help you, proceeds to reach over to all the way on the other side of the wheel is trying to grab the windshield wipers to be able to, to help me out as I'm driving. And I'm trying to kind of fight him back. And then I go through a, a four-way stop over. He goes, a stop sign. I was like, well, what's, stop, like, just stop. I mean, he, he's, he's all, I don't know what he's doing. He's trying to help me drive. He's trying to grab the wheel. He's trying to, to, to work the windshield wipers. He's working all these different things. I only had to take him five minutes, but when I dropped him off, uh, he, he said, uh, thank you for the ride, and all I could say is click, and that was the, the lock on the, uh, the door, uh, li locking it again. I had nothing else to say. That was the worst, two and a half years, right up the road from here, that was the worst experience I ever had. You, you know what was so, so bad about that? Was someone who had no idea what they were doing, trying to take control. I mean, how foolish would it be for someone who is intoxicated, for someone who is inebriated, to reach over the wheel thinking that they could do it better than I can, and then corrected me when I went through a stop sign. The only reason I went through a stop sign was I didn't see a stop sign because of him. But I wonder if this is how God feels when one of his creation, intoxicated by sin and with senses dulled by the flesh, try to tell the creator God that we can do it better. And we think we can be revived? have a revival of spirit when we're still calling the shots and telling creator God, I got it. Pride, arrogance, foolishness. So how do we give God control? Just consider these and we'll be done. Pray and daily yield yourself to him. Daily yield himself to him. I heard one preacher say this, if you pray as much as you worry, you'd have nothing to worry about. If you pray as much as you worry, you'd have nothing to worry about. Pray and daily yield yourself to God. God, I'm your vessel today. I'm a channel only for this world to be who you call me to be. To thank him for everything. Thank him for everything. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. Why? For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. You know, when you thank him for things that are bad, you know what you're saying? God. You're in control, and that thing that I perceive as bad has been brought into my life for good somehow. 
That's Romans, uh, that's Romans chapter 8. I will thank you for what I perceive to be bad because you brought it into my life to bring out some good. That doesn't mean that everything that happens is good, but that he can bring good even out of the bad parts of our life. And then finally, look at situations through his eyes, not your own. We covered this this morning in Sunday school. Look through his eyes, uh, not your own. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart. Lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Pray daily. Yield yourself to him. Thank him for everything. Look at situation through his eyes and not your own. And as I conclude this morning, think of the words of the missionary and martyr, Jim Elliott, who gave his life in an attempt to give the Alca tribe in Ecuador the gospel. He said this before he perished. God always gives his best to those who leave the choice with him. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the pulpit of Liberty Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, or if there's any way we can serve you, please let us know by contacting us at info at mylibertybaptist.org, or you can visit us this Sunday at 800 Washington Street in Easton, Massachusetts. May the Lord bless you as you grow in his word.